Hear now the word of the Lord. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is God's word. Let us pray. We do pray, our gracious Father, that as we open up this word and expose our hearts to your teaching, we pray that the Spirit who inspired this word would give us illumination, that he would turn on the lights of our hearts so that we can see the beauty of the truth. And we pray that as we are encountering the truth through the preaching of your word, that the Spirit's ministry would make our hearts soft and pliable and teachable and receptive to the truth. And we pray that because we've been here and because we've heard this word today, our lives would be fruitful and that fruitfulness would redound to the glory of Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Now, as we're going through the book of Hebrews, we have encountered uh, the mysterious personage of Melchizedek and how that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But rather than expounding this text like I usually do verse by verse, I'm going to do a little bit more of a thematic kind of sermon because I think it's extremely important. One of the things that we often miss as believers in Christ, those of us who are serious about truth and biblical doctrine, is, is the ascension of Christ and his present high priestly ministry at the right hand of the Father. We talk a lot about what happened in the past, and we go to the cross, and we, we remember the cross, and remember the death of Christ, and that's important, and we should, and it's helpful, and it produces in us something that nothing else can. And we also anticipate with great excitement and joy 
the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the future when he shall come and set all things right. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's fallen. It's broken. It's ruined in many senses. And when he returns, he will usher in his kingdom in its fullness and transform all things. And we need to think about that. We need to anticipate that with joy. But in the present, as believers, we are to remember, and I think it's very helpful in the present tense as a believer, to think about and understand what's going on now at the right hand of the Father. It's, this is an extremely important passage in that regard. Uh, what Christ is doing in the present, what he is doing this very instant, uh, is very important for us to grasp. And the writer here uses uh, sort of an Old Testament framework of the tabernacle or the temple. And he talks a lot about sacrifices, and he talks a lot about the temple, and he talks about uh, all of the responsibilities of the high priest and how that we have a better hope because, and, the, and that whole concept of the better hope is, is this. Jesus is appointed by God as a new type of priest. The former regulations are set aside because they were weak and useless. And those words speak of the ineffectiveness of the old order or the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. They were ineffective or they were not efficacious. The old covenant regulations concerning the priestly office simply could not and did not bring about God's ultimate relational aim for his people. Consequently, with the appointment of Jesus and his priesthood, God enters a better hope, or, or God uh, introduces a better hope. That is a means to achieve the desired aim for a relationship with his people since we are offered a perpetual basis for drawing near to God. As I told you last week, the Old Covenant was characterized more by distance. With the inauguration of the New Covenant and the gift of the Holy Spirit and His writing of the law upon our hearts and His giving us new hearts, we have the capacity for a much closer relationship with the Father. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to give away the punchline before I finish, in case some of you fall asleep which inevitably you will. Father's Day, you don't get a pass on this. But if you make much of yourself in your relationship with God, you will never, ever enjoy the intimacy and the ability to enter in and enjoy fellowship and communion with God if you make much of yourself. If you make much of Jesus, you will know a nearness, a closeness, a sense of intimacy with the Father that is hard to put into words. I can remember for most of my Christian life growing up in evangelicalism that I made much of myself. My Christian life was all about me. It was all about what I did. It was all about how I was striving, how I was trying, how I was, you know, just doing it. And as I began to understand the gospel in greater depth, and I began to see the gospel is not good advice nor steps to help me do better as a Christian, but rather good news of what someone else has accomplished on my behalf. 
then I have been freed as a person to enjoy God at the same time while recognizing I am simul ustus et peccator, at the same time righteous and a sinner. And the sinner part doesn't, get, doesn't negate my ability to enjoy a close relationship with the Father. That's what we're going to talk about today. So you've already heard the punchline, now let's, let's talk about it. I think people, uh, by and large, in our culture, are very aware of uh, themselves. <laughs> that's, that's pretty self-evident. Uh, all this stuff about Jesus being our priest and all of the sacrifices uh, didn't accomplish what the priesthood of Jesus accomplished. Uh, the word intercede is the word I want to call your attention to today. We're going to focus on that today. The word intercede doesn't just mean something priests do. Of course, priests do intercede for worshipers. But the word intercede also has a legal meaning, a forensic meaning. It also meant to appear as a representative in court, to appear as the representative of someone who was on trial. And when you think about this passage that way, it immediately begins to open up a few doors to us. We don't walk around in our culture today seeing animals slain, bulls, goats, lambs, and bloodshed. We don't see that. So it's hard for us to connect. But we do understand the concept of someone representing us at court in a trial. And so I want you to think about it that way for a few moments. A few years ago, I was reading a book on identity, and there was a citation from a New York Times magazine article. It was a woman writing it, and she said this, More than 40 years of looking at myself in the mirror have left me, like so many women I know, almost totally ignorant of what I look like. I guess that's why you look at it more than once. But totally, she said, I'm totally ignorant of what I look like. The mirror image I see is not a real reflection at all, but a composite of memories, wishes, and half-truths. By now, I have learned to live with my shadowy self-image. And I know that there's a real me lurking somewhere in there, even though I can't see her. And then she goes on to explain, for example, we don't keep pictures of ourselves that we hate. You throw them away. You keep the pictures you like. You don't even look in the mirror at certain angles. You come to learn that these certain angles you want to look at do not flatter you, and so you learn to look at If you've got a double chin, when you look in the mirror, you stick your head out, right? <laughs> Maybe you think the left side of your face is more, uh, better looking than the right side of your face. But we're always walking around with an image in our head of what we hope we look like, but we're afraid we don't. And that's just the physical, because you also walk around with an image of your, in your head of what you look like as a person to people, what your character is like, what your soul is like. This same woman said she decided to go to a, um, not a designer, but a stylist. She went and paid 750 bucks to see a stylist, and this stylist totally changed her outwardly. Totally new wardrobe, tor tor totally new hairdo, different makeup, different clothing. And so after she goes to see the stylist, she goes back home. She tells this story. 
She goes back home and she opens the door and walks in and her seven-year-old son starts screaming and crying. Where's my mother? <laughs> her husband never looked up from the newspaper. Here she is, incredibly frustrated. Are you a lovable person or are you a hard-to-love person? Are you a good person or are you a bad person? How good are you? How bad are you? Are you beautiful or are you ugly? Morally, spiritually, personally. We walk around with an image in our heads of what we hope to be. That we look to other people but we don't actually, deep down inside we're afraid we don't look like we hope we look like. And here's what's interesting. You can't not care about this. No matter how hard you've tried, even if you think it's a sign of mental health, and it's not, if you really think you can live a satisfied life with your own evaluation of yourself, your own verdict, your own pronouncement of whether you're good or bad or beautiful or ugly, you can't. You just can't live with your own evaluation. We desperately need a pronouncement from the outside. You need to know, though you're afraid to know, but basically, you're living your entire life to prove to ourselves that we can get the verdicts we want. We want somebody to pronounce that over us or upon us. And it's amazing. Uh, the book of Romans says that whether you admit it with your mind or not, there is a God. And your heart knows there's one. And actually, your whole life is a trial. It's unavoidably a trial. And underneath all the efforts to get verdicts from people, verdicts about how you look physically and spiritually and morally, verdicts about how you're doing career-wise, verdicts about how you are morally and personally, you're after verdicts. That's what everyone wants. You're after pronouncements. You're after awards, accomplishments. You're looking for a word from outside of you to give you hope and confidence that you are who you think you are. But the truth is, we're really looking for a word from the Lord of the universe because there really is an ultimate bench before which we are all arguing. There's an ultimate court before which we will all stand and appear. The real question is, are you going into that court alone or not? Every so often you'll see a dramatic depiction of a drama having to do something with a courtroom in which the accused decides to be his or her own lawyer. And what's the saying? If you decide to be your own lawyer, you have what? Fool for a client. But isn't that what most people are doing in relation to God? Aren't most people hoping to stand before the bar of God as their own lawyer and plead their own righteousness and plead their own goodness and by comparison say it's not that bad so uh, occasionally you'll see this happen on a drama and in the mythological world of television they actually win the trial but if you're a real attorney you know this never happens to be your own representative never works it's ineffective the book of Hebrews is telling us we don't have to go alone People who go alone are crazy. People who go alone are nuts. 
people who go alone are religious, who think they can argue themselves. They say, look, I'm living a pretty good life. I'm doing very well. I'm a good father. I'm a good mother. I'm a very moral person. But that is not what Christianity is about at all. Jesus, according to the book of Hebrews, is the advocate we need in that trial that we are unavoidably in. Jesus is the advocate. Now, in verses 24 and 25, it tells us that Jesus lives forever, and he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely all who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for us. Now, I know we're mixing metaphors here, but it's fair because here we are. I've been giving you the metaphor of going before the bench with your advocate, your rep representative, your attorney. And here, of course, is talking about going before God with a priest. But it's essentially the same thing. And this word, intercede, does mean that. If you look at what the word meant in the original language, it can certainly be used as a priest arguing before God. But it... Uh, but uh, here's what it can also mean. It can mean uh, if you're in trouble and you go appear before an authority like a king or a magistrate or a ruler, if you got in trouble, you never want to appear before them alone by yourself. Very seldom do you know people in court. Very seldom were you elo eloquent enough. Very seldom did you know the rules and the issues and all the ways in which the court kind of worked. What you did was you went and got an advocate for yourself. You got a representative for yourself. You went to someone who could appear before you. So what do you look like in court? Well, you look like your advocate. You're in your advocate. Your advocate is your substitute. If you're in a court and you have an attorney and your attorney is brilliant and your attorney is skillful, then all of that comes to your account. What we're being told here, though, is something extremely powerful. That, of course, is this is what it means to be a Christian. Here's what it means to be a Christian. A lot of people think what it means to be a Christian is to use Christ as your example, your model, or to have Christ as your helper, or to be Christian means to be in him. Paul says this over and over again. It is union with Christ. It is to be in him. It is to have him be your substitute. That is the reason why, and it's pretty interesting, that an awful lot of people believe they're Christian because they come to church, because they try to obey what Christ teaches. They have some general understanding of the truth that he died for my sins. And they don't know really how that works, but that's not the same thing as understanding Jesus as our advocate. According to the Bible and according to the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the ultimate advocate. He stands as our representative before the ultimate throne, the ultimate bench, in the ultimate trial before the court, which is the only one that counts. Jesus Christ is our advocate. How does that work? I remember when I first became a Christian. I was a new Christian. I was a young Christian. thought I knew everything and knew nothing, but that was me. And I remember thinking uh, about that. I'd heard of the idea that Jesus interceded for me before the Father. But it really wasn't any comfort to me at all. One of the reasons was it sounded kind of bizarre. 
It, it also was no comfort to me, partly because I think some of the ways in which high-profile lawyers actually operate in court. Because of what I saw in some of those high-profile trials, I really misunderstood what this is all about. Here's what I thought was happening, and this is why it wasn't any comfort to me. This is why I used to see the high priesthood of Jesus. I figured every day Jesus came before the Father with sort of a caseload, and he'd pull out a folder marked Posey. And he looks up and he says, Oh, yeah, Father, uh, all these promises he's made to change, and he's doing it again anyway. Please give him a break for my sake. Give him one more chance. I know he means well. This one more time could be it. And you owe me. I went to earth and all those things. Pretty please. I ask for mercy for my client. I throw myself on the mercy of the court. I expected, I guess, that the father would say, well, okay, sure. Here's the reason why that was no comfort to me. Because I understood what Jesus was doing. And if that's the intercessory work of Jesus Christ, spinning the story to get mercy out of the Father, I thought to myself, how long can he keep that up? There's no particular reason why the Father one day just couldn't say, look, he's a pastor now for heaven's sakes. It's too late. I've had it. He can't keep doing things like this. He's ruining our reputation. You know what he's doing up there? Look at verses 27 and 28. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. This is what Jesus is saying. It's metaphorical, but I'll get to that in a second. He's saying this, Father, you demand justice. You are a just God, and my friends here, the people on whose behalf I am speaking, are certainly like dust in the scales of comparison to you. They're guilty, but I have made a payment. There is my blood. It would be unjust to get double jeopardy, that is, two payments for the same debt. Therefore, because I've made payments for this debt, I am not asking here for mercy for my brothers and sisters. I'm not here asking for mercy. I demand justice. Your justice, your very righteousness, demands your complete embrace and acceptance of them throughout all of eternity. That's an infallible case. That's a slam dunk. The book of Isaiah says that divine justice and righteousness of God is as inexorable as so the mountains are like dust in the scales by comparison. Every day you're making arguments. Every day you're saying, well, I do this and I'm okay like this. You're dealing with yourself. You're trying to bolster your image. You try to deal with your conscience every day. What are you pointing to? I'm a good mother. I'm a good father. I love my parents. I try my best. I work harder than most of the people in my department. What's that compared to this? What he's saying is what I learned back when I studied Campus Crusade theology. 1 John 1, 9. I used to tell people, you just got to 1 John 1, 9 it. What does that mean? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Just to forgive our sins. It doesn't say he's faithful and merciful. 
Do you know what that's saying? The intercessory work of Jesus Christ, the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, the substitution of Jesus Christ, who lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die in our place, has changed things forever, so now the very law, justice, and righteousness of God demands our acceptance. To be in union with Christ is to have confidence. Do you know that there's a place where God comes to Cain after he kills Abel? And he says to Cain, The blood of your brother Abel cries out to me from the ground for vengeance. But there's a better Abel, Jesus Christ, whose blood cries out from the ground for grace. It's an infallible case. Jesus is the ultimate advocate. He's the ultimate attorney. And if that's the ultimate case, then to be in union with him, being seen in him, is the ultimate confidence and assurance and security that a person can have. Now, if this sinks in, if you understand what Christianity is, does that change your life? Well, it better. I want to say a couple of things before I get on to two or three applications at the end. First of all, the metaphor. Here's the problem with metaphors. Every metaphor, every image is both important and crucial, but also limited. When it says that Jesus Christ is our shepherd, that doesn't mean that we're senseless animals. When it says Jesus Christ is the door, that doesn't mean that he'll give us splinters. When it says Jesus Christ is a high priest pleading before the Father, it doesn't mean the Father is some sort of grumpy person. And Jesus is up there trying to work him so that we can <laughs> find a place. We need to take these images out of our head. The Father and the Son did all this together. The whole rescue operation is done together. I happen to believe that the oath he keeps talking about in this passage, the oath that he has sworn, is actually the covenant of redemption. I think it goes back that far, the covenant that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit entered into before the creation of the world to save a people for themselves. And the Father planned and was the architect of that. The Son came and accomplished redemption. And the Holy Spirit infallibly applies it to God's people. And so that's the kind of image we're getting here. That's what we need. But every image is a partial but important way of getting across the nature of spiritual reality. However, we need to let one of these images seek, sink deep down into our hearts because they are the way in which God is getting across this incredible spiritual reality. This is what we need to realize. High priest. Do you know much about high priest? Have you ever seen pictures of high priest? They were absolutely covered and wrapped with gold and silver and jewels. Basically, the net worth of the entire nation was in the ephod, which was a whole bunch of jewels or also on the turban. There was gold, there were pearls, there were diamonds, there were rubies, and they were gorgeous, silver and gold everywhere. The high priest had all this wealth. Why? You pick up a candle, and the reflection of the high priest was utterly dazzling. The high priest was an absolute beauty. And to say that Jesus Christ is your high priest is to say to the Father, He, he has worked out things within the Godhead, so your sin has been dealt with, 
But not just that. You're not just pardoned. It's not just a matter of mercy. It means when the Father looks at you and He looks at me, He sees an absolute beauty. He sees an absolute exquisite beauty. You are beautiful beyond bearing. Has that sunk in? You see, being a Christian is not just a matter of forgiveness. It's not just a matter of pardon. It is that. It is true that Jesus died on the cross. It does mean our sins are forgiven. But it doesn't mean that now I have to work really hard to sort of keep up. In other words, if you just think negatively about salvation, as wonderful as pardon is, as wonderful as forgiveness is, that's only half of it. It's not just we're pardoned. But it means united to Christ God sees me through the filter or through the lens of Jesus Christ, and I am an absolutely stunning beauty. You don't hear many preachers say that, do you? It's not just that I get pardoned. I'm an absolute beauty. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is an old Welsh pastor and preacher, and I've referred to him a number of times, uh, is incredibly clear and incredibly simple. There's an awful lot of people who think they're Christians and they're not because they only understand the negative, not the positive. They only understand the idea that Jesus somehow procured for my forgiveness and not that he is my beauty, he is my glory, he is my righteousness, he is my worthiness. United to him, I'm beautiful. I'm not just simply forgiven and tolerated. I'm not forgiven, and the Father looks at me with sort of a mild disgust like a Presbyterian minister. (laughs) He's so disappointed in me. United to Christ, I am a radiant beauty. Right now, I have to take that on faith. i got a mirror at home. I know what I look like. (laughs) But to make it very practical... Lloyd-Jones said, I have a very simple test. After I've explained the gospel or the way of Christ to somebody, I say, now are you ready to say you are a Christian? And they hesitate. They hesitate. And I say, well, what's the matter? Why are you hesitating? And people will more often than not say, well, I don't feel I'm good enough. I don't think I'm ready to say I'm a Christian now. And at once I know it's almost as if I've been wasting my breath. They're still thinking in terms of themselves. They have to do it. It sounds very modest to say, well, you know, I don't think I'm good enough. But it's a denial of the faith. The very essence of Christian faith is to say, he's good enough. And I am united to him. As long as we go on thinking about ourselves like that and saying, oh, I'm not good enough, you're denying God, you're denying grace, you're denying the gospel, you're denying the essence of faith, and you will never have joy. So you better think at times. If you find yourself not as good at other times and better at other times, you'll be up and down forever. But how can I put it plainly? It doesn't matter if you have almost entered into the depths of hell. It doesn't matter if you're guilty of murder as well as every other vile sin. It doesn't matter from the standpoint of being justified before God at all. You are no more hopeless than the most moral and respectable person in this world. Do you get that? As John Gerstner used to say, it's not so much your sins that will damn you, it's your respectable good works. It's your high opinion of yourself. And our... Faith in our own goodness keeps us 
from grasping and being grasped by the liberating, life-giving, powerful truth of God's gospel. And the freedom that comes from that, if you keep looking at yourself, you keep looking at yourself, you're going to miss Jesus. And you're going to miss the glory of Jesus. i got to tell you, when I was first a Christian, I embraced the idea of forgiveness. But I did not start living anywhere close to being what I should be in Christ until I understood He's not just negatively my forgiveness and my pardon. He's my advocate. He is my wisdom, my righteousness, my sanctification, my redemption. And if you embrace that, that will make a huge difference in your life. There are about six things here, but I don't think you can listen to six things, so I'll trim it down. Unless I'm underestimating you. <laughs> I've been doing this too long to know that. So you get a completely new identity when you become a Christian. As I said before, unavoidably, every single person is on trial. You know there's a trial whether you believe in God or not. You know you're trying to prove yourself. You're either going to grab hold of Jesus or you're going to grab hold of something else as your advocate and something else as the way in which you prove yourself to people you're okay, you're good, you're beautiful, or you're worthy. The trouble is, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, how does that work for confidence? How does that work when there's a test? How does that work? Sometimes you're doing well at your identity factor. Sometimes you're not doing well at your identity factor. But to know you stand complete in Him, and when God looks at you, He sees you as an absolute beauty. I cannot tell you how liberating that is. Especially for an extremely competitive person like myself. I mean, when I became a Christian, I was going to be the greatest Christian that ever lived. I mean, they were going to have to move Apostle Paul back a couple of notches. Boy, did that die quickly. I remember the first time in my life reading Romans 7, verses 14 to 25. And I wrote a song, which thankfully is nowhere to be found, called Post-Salvation Blues. I had a little blues rhythm going there. And I was singing. I, I thought I needed to get saved again. I thought, well, maybe I need to go back to the church, walk aisle again, take a preacher's hand. Let's do it over. It didn't take the first time. But this is liberating. It's freeing. It's so freeing. If we embrace Jesus as our advocate, we have such life in him, such life. You get a total abolition of guilt. You know, Jesus says that our name is engraved over his heart. All those jewels on the high priest ephod are just a way of getting across the fact that when God looks at you, he sees a diamond, he sees a ruby, he sees beauty, he sees gold, he sees silver, and we can stand with absolute confidence in the court. Then all the little courts are okay, you can handle them. This is the kind of confidence we have the kind of identity that's most deeply secure as possible. But we get a total abolition of guilt. I'll put it this way. We're all a little bit different on this, but I know a lot of you are like this. Sometimes you're walking along, minding your business, and all of a sudden you get a slideshow of all the things you've ever done wrong. 
And there's a little voice that comes up and says, you're a failure, you're a liar, you're a, an adulterer, you're a betrayer. What are you going to do? You're going to say, well, I've had a pretty good month this month. And as soon as you try to be your own advocate, you will lose every time. Don't you dare try to be your own lawyer. Instead, you need to take out this Bible passage. And you need to focus upon that. As John Newton said, when though the accuser roar of ills that I have done, I know them well and thousands more, Jehovah findeth none. It depends on what you want to take out. The fact is that if, you, if he is your worthiness and not just merely your pardon, then you are complete in him. It abolishes guilt. It gives you a new identity. Also, and this will be the last thing I will say, this knowledge of Christ as your advocate sort of undermines discouragement and disappointment. Now, it deeply undermines discouragement and dis disappointment. It doesn't abolish it, but it deeply undermines it. The understanding of Jesus as our advocate abolishes guilt. It can undermine disappointment. Why? Because life is disappointing. It's filled with brokenness. Jesus Christ was walking around weeping as we see him in the Gospels. Why? Because he cared. And we're going to weep too. So our deepest discouragements and disappointments are due to the fact that we're trying to become or make something else be for us only that which our advocate Jesus Christ can be for us. There's a discouragement that comes in your vocation which would be deeply mollified and mitigated if Jesus is your worthiness. If your career is your worthiness, then discouragement is going to go on and on and know no endless depths. This also suffuses your life with playfulness. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Some of us are just so deadly serious. And it may sound weird, especially if you're a moral or religious person. The very foundation of your life is how well you're doing. And if somebody comes and criticizes you, then you take it very seriously and you say, how dare you say that to me? You don't know me. You're either devastated or furious when people criticize you. But do you know this gospel? You know, I stand at the back at the end of the service and people come by and there might be 25 people will say something about the sermon and they'll say, Oh, that was a wonderful sermon. Thank you, Pastor Tim. And some guy will come by and basically says in so many words, that really sucked. Just sucked. It's the worst sermon I ever had. And when I go home, when I was a younger pastor, what would I do? I didn't even hear what the 25 people said. What that one person said, I would get in a fetal position, sit in a corner in a dark room, and say, woe is me. I'm undone. But i got to tell you something. When somebody criticizes me now, it's hard for me not to belly laugh. You don't know the half of what's wrong with me. <laughs> when I first planted this church here in 1990, I was here in 1988, about 1990, there was a small group in the church that sort of became hostile, to say the least. And they wrote seven pages on a legal pad of things that were wrong with me. And they gave it to me so that I would know. I didn't understand the gospel at that time, and that devastated me. I went back to the mission M&A and said, look, I don't think this is going to go. 
I said, there's been a mutiny, and, uh, you know, I'm just not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. But, you know, if that happened to me today, I think I would probably laugh, and I would say, yeah, you have no clue. This is a joke. It's, it's a joke. Here are two things that can rob you of your humor. Superior pride or inferiority, shyness and self-consciousness. Christianity gets rid of both. Gets rid of both. You're such a terrible sinner. How can you be proud? You're so absolutely and exquisitely loved. How in the world can you be shy? This means you should be laughing a lot. Why do we take ourselves so seriously? The more you understand the advocacy of your Savior, who He is, what He has done, what He's going to do, and what He's doing now, I feel like Wallace in that movie. What's that movie? Braveheart. Thank you. My wife always helps me on these. Braveheart. And he screams as he's stretched out, Freedom! And that's what I want to do. Freedom. Freedom from the shackles. Now, there are always a group of people in every church that want to put the shackles back on you. And I just have to tell them with the sweetest smile I can give them, I will not participate in your legalism. I will not do it. But I want you to participate in the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. So, I made the outline for this sermon on Tuesday. And I figured out what I wanted to preach yesterday. So if it doesn't match up, We'll just have to chalk it down to the pastor decided to go thematic. <laughs> because I wanted you to know the joy of understanding we have an advocate. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. We thank you for the liberation we know. When we look outside of ourselves, abandon all hope in all of our righteousness, goodness, and worth, and cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ and receive from Him all the benefits of being in union with Him, we get everything He gets because we're united to Him. We thank You that we are beautiful in Your eyes, and we pray that we would grow to know this reality more and more. Now, fathers, we continue to worship. May we give as people who've been touched deeply by the liberating power of the gospel and understand that we only manage that which you have given us, and we have this glorious opportunity to give back to you a portion of what you've given to us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.